Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. This is the podcast where we look at the national security challenges facing Australia in the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by policyforum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. And in this podcast, we are going to go from navigating vessels through crowded sea lanes all the way to understanding the liberal rules-based order. First, we are going to be speaking to Commodore Michelle Miller from the Royal Australian Navy, where we will discuss some of the legal and operational issues around maritime security in the South China Sea. And then we will chat to Ewan Graham, who is a senior fellow at the Lowy Institute, and we'll be talking about maritime security in the Indo-Pacific, China's participation in the recent Kakadu exercises in Australia's Northern Territory, and we will also discuss the, the changing balance of power and what that means for the liberal rules-based order. And before we do that, I just want to give a quick shout out to our friends at Aspie and thank them for including our podcast on countering violent extremism in their recent newsletter. And don't forget, we're always keen to hear what you think about some of the issues that we discuss, but we're even more keen to hear what you would like us to discuss in future podcasts. And you can get in touch with us by using Twitter at Apps Policy Forum or on Facebook at Asia Pacific Policy Society or via email using podcast at policyforum.net. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you pod on and we're always happy to receive those five-star ratings from you. The more of these ratings we get, the more people we can bring in to have these interesting discussions. So now let's hear from Michelle, uh, but with the quick caveat that whilst uh, Michelle's views are her own and do not necessarily represent the views of the Royal Australian Navy or the Australian Government, anything stupid that I say is completely on me. Michelle, welcome to the National Security Podcast. Thank you, Chris, and very happy to be here. Now, you're a Commodore in the Australian Navy. Uh, How long have you been in the Navy for? Just on 30 years now, um, and it's been a fantastic career, one that I never expected. And with relevance to what we're discussing today, I think I first went to sea in the South China Sea in 1992, and pretty much every year, a couple of times a year up until I was last at sea in 2008, commanding the frigate HMAS Perth. So the South China Sea is actually a very interesting waterway. It's quite crowded and it has very diverse um, seabeds, some deep areas, some uh, shallow areas. What's your experience been like sailing through an area like that? It is a very interesting waterway and challenging at all times. Um, The weather can whip up and they get these heavy sea fogs where you can't see past the India forecastle. And although it looks like a pretty broad patch of water, there are what we call sea lanes. You can go around sea lanes, but what happens is the trade, and in particular the big ships usually just go up and down these uh, up and down these quick routes to and from ports. So it's a little bit like putting a highway through the Nullarbor Plain. But the difference is that outside of that highway lane um, is then open for fisheries. And in particular, a lot of the South China Sea is very shallow and the fishing fleets um, out of Vietnam and China in particular are extensive and they operate out in those areas. So you could decide that you want to be quick about it and not stay on the highway, but very quickly you find yourself in these massive fishing fleets. Um, One night when we were transiting through the South China Sea a few years ago, um, the only way that you could tell in some... You could see the big fishing vessels because they were very well lit and they had persaining nets out. But every now and then you'd just look down and there'd be a bloke on a bamboo pole with a 
basically a big lighter waving at you to indicate that he had his nets out. So, of course, there's dozens of these guys hanging around. So pretty quickly you decide that you don't want to stray too far off the sea lane and you actually go back into the main transit areas so that you can keep yourself out of strife. And what have you been doing since you haven't been at sea? Of course, once you finish going to sea, you need to repay your debts and actually work on the bigger picture policy places. So I then came to Canberra, went to Russell offices. And also during that time, I was able to do my master's degree where my thesis was actually focused on the South China Sea as well. Now, talking about the South China Sea, we have recently seen, just in the end of August, a British vessel, the HMS Albion. It's an amphibious assault ship and it it sailed through the South China Sea, actually close to the Paracel Islands and was challenged by China. I want to ask why the British are there, but let's let's frame it a little bit. There are a, a lot of, whether they're misconceptions or whether they're analytical disagreements on what is going on there and why it's happening. China has built some islands or reclaimed some land uh, in the South China Sea and now is asserting territorial rights and sovereignty over the South China Sea in contravention to a lot of accepted laws and norms, and that is being challenged challenged by numerous countries, both in and outside of the region. Can I start off by asking why China is laying claim to such an expansive piece of maritime territory that seems to extend so far away from their mainland? What What is their motivation? What are they trying to achieve? I think there's a number of factors that play into it. Uh, The South China Sea is a semi-enclosed sea, um, bounded in the north by the Straits of Taiwan, south to Indonesia, uh, west to Malaysia, and then east to the Philippines. So there's also a lot of other national claimants in that particular space. Since 2009, though, uh, China's been particularly vocal about claims in the South China Sea, and in particular stating or taking... Uh, ownership of certain territorial features in the Paracels, which is in the western part of the South China Sea, and in the Spratly Islands, which are to the east. Um, There's also some discussions they've had with Indonesia in the further south, but really the Paracels in the west and the Spratlys are the east are the main part. Um, In 2009, that's when the Chinese announced their claim through um, advertising of the Nine Dash Line, which pretty much encompasses all of the South China Sea, which then caused many other countries to be concerned. But it's not just that they're claiming all of that water, it's the way in which they wish to claim that water. Right. And and what do you think their motivation is? Uh, if, if you look at the map, the Nine Dash Line actually extends right down into Southeast Asia and seems to be quite a distance away from the Chinese mainland. What is driving China to challenge its neighbours like this and to essentially upset what is a regional order? I think there's several different layers to it. Um, At the top level in terms of a geopolitical level, um, the Sino-US rivalry is in part of it. Uh, China's continuing to expand both their military presence but also their economic power. And the US has been a strong presence in the South China Sea since before the Second World War and has been the dominant um, security player throughout Southeast Asia and parts of Northeast Asia as well. And so at that first level, that top level, there's the geopolitical play. The second level is then... Sorry, could I just expand on the geopolitical play? So you're saying that China uh, does not want a US presence in the South China Sea. Is, Is that basically what you're saying? I think what I'm saying is that China, as it's expanding its economic power and its military power, is looking to secure uh, its own um, sense of security and, um, to an extent, ameliorate anxieties that it has about the presence of the US in the South China Sea. And and now that it's able to, um, China exert more presence and more power in the South China Sea because they see it as their own their own backyard. We're probably going to get into the geopolitical thing a bit, but I'll let you move on to the next level. The next level is then at uh, the local and more regional level and what it means with respect to regional neighbours and the way in which China then works with, in particular, Vietnam, the Philippines, Malaysia over the South China Sea and what um, those countries also claim and the bilateral relationships that are set up there. And then at the third level is about the resources, I think, which is uh, the access and ownership of large fisheries resources and um, largely untapped oil and gas resources that are supposedly promised in the region as well. So they've got three main motivations, I think, for continuing um, and 
increasing their presence and activities in the South China Sea. Okay, so let's let's say we removed the the resource issue, the fisheries, the raw materials, the oil, and so on. If we actually removed them out of the picture, would that change China's uh, behaviour, its motivations to do this, or would the geopolitical imperatives, um, which are essentially tr- uh, from my uh, position, seems to be they're breaking out of the first island chain, which runs from uh, Japan down through the Philippines into Indonesia, Malaysia, and down into the Malacca Straits. If if you remove those res- the resource competition out of there, would China still have a driver to uh, try and control these waters or command these waters? From a big picture national security level, um, they would definitely still have that motivation. And one of the points that I didn't mention just before is about their own resource security. 80% or at least 80% of their crude oil supplies currently transit through the sea lines of communication in the South China Sea and a good proportion of their natural gas as well. So they're the concept of national security as it applies to um, ensuring their own economic survival as well as uh, wanting to make a presence in the region because they now can and regaining some of their historical historical ascendancy in the region, I think are, are, are two motivators that they would have there. And that, that really moves back into the geopolitical picture. Uh, now, if you look at China. To the north, they have the Siberian wastelands or the Siberian expanse, which freezes in the winter. It's a great long distance and it also gets very wet and marshy and full of mosquitoes in the summer. To the west of uh, Chinese coastline, you've also got the Tarim Basin and uh, a large desert area which would extend any supply lines of any invading force. And down to the south, you've got the Himalayas and the jungles of Southeast Asia, two uh, geographical features that are very difficult to move land-based forces through. So the Chinese coastline, which is essentially its strategic heartland where it has its uh, population centre, its arable land and also its industry in from the north, the west and the south seems to have geographical buffers that are protecting it. But if you look at the coastline, they've got Taiwan, the Philippines and Japan uh, right up on on their geographical heartland with no buffer, no strategic depth around their, their uh, strategic centre. If they push out past these this island chain. In other words, if they have a certain element of control over the islands and what happens inside those internal waters, that gives them a strategic buffer where they can protect their heartland. And as you're saying, they, they have have to access resources. A lot of those resources are coming from the Middle East in the form of raw energy. They can't transport enough over the land because of the great distances and because of the geographical features that they have to access it through the maritime commons. And the island chain around China's coastline, it creates a large amount of, uh, I used to call them choke points, but I believe that choke point is not the right term. As you've mentioned previously, a choke point is when you only have a single uh, passageway that you can transit through, where these are strategic straits instead, which may be easily blocked by an opposing force. Could you maybe go into some of the technical or some of the operational concerns that China has when it sees its um, immediate maritime environment? I think the first thing to consider generally is about the nature of maritime security and the nature of the ocean as distinct to continental security. And you're right, things like mountains uh, act as natural, um, natural blocks uh, and buffers. And similarly also with a land army, you can take large areas of territory and continue to control them and you can know what goes on um, through the entire region. The ocean's different. It's porous. Um, you can't necessarily tell what's going on underneath the ocean, particularly with um, sensors or with submarines. And you don't control it in the same way that you can control land. So some um, continentalists or some continental theories would prescribe um, the same principles to the ocean, but the ocean's very, very different. So China, looking out from its southeastern coastline, 
could possibly feel vulnerable there because you can't control it in the same way you can the rest of the territory. Um, in terms of when we were just talking strategic straits, they do become very important, particularly in times of conflict, but even just in times of maritime accidents. So uh, you're right, they don't act as choke points because you can always go around them. Uh, it just takes more time, it takes more money, insurance costs can also increase and so the costs to shipping in your energy uh, or shipping any of your other goods start to go up as well. So there's an economic factor in that too. So you've touched on an interesting issue there in terms of controlling territory. There is a line of argument that suggests that the South China Sea is actually quite important to the Chinese nuclear triad, and that's the ability to launch nuclear weapons from three areas, from land, from air and from sea. And the argument is is that China has its major submarine base in Hainan Island down in the south, and they can deploy submarines into the South China Sea without having to pass through a strait where they could be identified and tracked, and they can just move straight out of their submarine base into the South China Sea, and they can use that space where they can constantly have submarines deployed not too far from their mainland, but are very difficult to be identified and tracked, and therefore they they only have to have a submarine deployed in the South China Sea somewhere to complete one arm of their nuclear triad. Is, is that a fair argument to make? From a strategic defence point of view, I think that's an entirely reasonable concern for the Chinese to have and very much that continentalist approach that we were talking about before. But the truth of the matter with the ocean is as soon as you then sail, um, you can be detected and you don't actually know if your adversary has been able to detect you. So operationally, you need to figure out ways in which to be able to operate and give yourself the best chance of achieving your strategic aims in that space. What's interesting at a political level with China is that in 2009, when they announced the Nine Dash Line, they also stated or put into domestic law that they treated their exclusive economic zone in a different way than is um, actually mandated under the United Nations. United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. And specifically, they made it a domestic offence to operate military vessels inside the EEZ, which is different to everywhere else in the the world. But to an extent, based on what you said before, you can see why they might have that concern. All of the waters of the South China Sea, they consider to be their EEZ, and all of the waters of the South China Sea, they wish to control, as you do with territory, and know what other militaries are doing in that area because of a deep-seated sense of vulnerability over their continental security. As we go to record today, we are hearing news that uh, some Japanese vessels have moved into the South China Sea, and it's a small task group that's made up of a helicopter destroyer, a an air, war- air warfare destroyer, and also an Oyashio-class submarine. Um, these seems like fairly serious vessels to be moving into a contested area like this. What is Japan's interest in the South China Sea? Uh It's effectively Japan's backyard, but it's also the main routes uh, for their energy supplies as well. They've got other routes um, that they can take further east, but the South China Sea still provides a lot of um, their sea lanes of communication. Uh, One important aspect under the Law of the Sea Convention is if you wish to challenge some other nation's claims of territorial ownership and um, sovereignty claims, is that you actually have a continuous presence in the region. Uh, Japan and China have their own conflict over islands uh, up near Japan. And I would think that Japan as part of uh, both maintaining those claims as well as their uh, just normal rights in the South China Sea would be interested in operating in the South China Sea and just upholding the correct rules in the same way that many other nations are also operating at the moment. It's important for them because of their own sea lines of communication, but at the bigger level, the maintenance of a rules-based global order and having everybody play by those standard norms and rules requires you to continue to operate and actually give voice in a very practical way to what you claim. And that brings us back to where we started the conversation today is the transit of the British warship HMS Albion past the Paracel Islands. What interest does Great Britain have in doing freedom of navigation operations 
on the other side of the planet where they don't necessarily have immediate interests. Why, why are the British taking a risk to upset China by doing an operation like this so far from their shores? Uh, in fact, it's interesting because there has been some global media reporting about uh, and criticism of Britain doing it at this time because it might threaten their uh, economic relationship with China. But at that strategic level, I would think that the British are looking to reinforce their global footprint. They've been an operator in this part of the globe for a few hundred years. And um, not only, as we were talking about before, maintaining a continuous presence so that they can uphold the rules-based global order, but it also means that they can keep their foot into the region and a region that they've been um, intimately involved with over a number of centuries. Yes, it's funny that you bring that up, given that uh, Great Britain has some history of sending gunboats along the Chinese shore and, and up its rivers to protect what it saw as its uh, trading relationship with China. So I'm sure that uh, China does see the British involvement in this area as a particular point of interest for them. And what I would like to really discuss is what the British did when they went past. Now, we've mentioned the um, United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea and the way it views EEZs and uh, Innocent Passage and so on. Could you explain to me first off what Innocent Passage is? Right. So the first part is that uh, if you have, and we'll talk about an island, it generates around it a territorial sea, which can be a maximum of 12 nautical miles. So if you have a neighbour that owns another bit of territory inside that distance, you kind of have to have a negotiation to split the difference. But if we talk just about a single feature owned by a country, it generates a territorial sea of 12 miles. Within that 12 miles, military sovereign vessels can transit under what's known as innocent passage, which means submarines have to be on the surface and warships have to basically transit continuously and uh, expeditiously without stopping to operate or to fire any weapons, basically to transit innocently. Like someone walking across your front lawn, you don't want them to stop and pick your flowers, you want them to keep walking across it. Outside of the territorial sea, it's effectively high seas. There's some other zones like the EEZ uh, that we talk about for economic purposes, but effectively in terms of sovereignty, there's the territorial sea in Innocent Passage, and then there's the high seas in which you can transit in the normal mode. And, and the EEZ is just where you're allowed to conduct commercial activities, is that correct? Yes, yeah, so in the EEZ, a, uh, a sovereign state can control uh, fisheries and other resources, um, seabed mining, those kinds of economic um, ventures that are associated with the ocean. But military vessels aren't usually concerned with those particular uh, those particular things. So the military vessels can operate in the normal mode. You can fire weapons, provided it's safe to do so with airspace. Um, you can conduct manoeuvres, you can um, stop, you can conduct any number of exercises and operations. So in terms of the, ma the military side, there's really only the territorial sea and innocent passage and the high seas and what you would consider to be the normal mode. And does China see things differently? China does see things differently. Um, the territorial seas that they claim uh, at least 12, 12 miles, and it, it depends on the nature of the features because sometimes you can aggregate sets of islands together and claim more territorial sea than you would otherwise. The Law of the Sea Convention is pretty, um, pretty clear on what the correct rules are. It's just the way in which nations um, choose to interpret them. And you might state that something's a piece of territory and is an island when in fact you've built it yourself and it doesn't generate the same sorts of features from it. Right. So now looking at the distances that countries like Great Britain are conducting their FONOPs, reporting is, is that Great Britain, the HMS Albion, did not go within the 12 nautical mile zone and neither have the US vessels that have been conducting FONOPs in South China Sea as well. Why are they not breaching that 12 nautical mile distance to these features? The term FONOPs is a somewhat loaded term. And at any time where you're on the high seas and exercising in the normal mode or in someone's territorial seas and um, exercising innocent passage, it's effectively the same thing, freedom of navigation operations in terms of choosing to uphold the correct rules for that part of water that you should be in. And if it was an island uh, in the middle of nowhere, that would generate a territorial sea of 12 nautical miles. So what the US, um, Britain, countries like Australia and others have chosen to do is to, for instance, outside of 12 nautical miles, operate in the normal mode 
and then if they do transit within 12 nautical miles to operate in terms of innocent passage. The challenge with China, however, is that they view both the aggregation of features and where the territorial seas exist, as well as what can be done on what we would call the high seas. Um, They view those things differently. And so it's been in China's interests to actually continuously challenge any vessels that are doing um, those freedom of navigation operations to maintain both the customary position as well as to be able to make a case for any future claims that they might have about owning and controlling any particular features. It's interesting that uh, we talk about the way different nations view UNCLOS and Vietnam actually holds a very similar position uh, to China in terms of uh, passage through their EEZ. So when when FONOPs like this are being carried out, are they also a challenge to Vietnam as well or is any, people are people only paying attention to China's reaction? I think your assessment that people are really only paying attention to China's assessment is correct and largely that's because China's about the only country that's doing anything consistently about that. Um, nearly all the nations around the South China Sea have overlapping and competing claims. Um, Vietnam and Countries like Brunei and Malaysia don't necessarily have the resources to be able to enforce those claims in the same way that China does. The danger for those countries, however, and of which I'm, sh- I'm sure they're well aware, is unless they're out there defending those claims, then if it comes to arbitration at some point, China can point very clearly and say, we've been here, we've been protecting our territory. Um, everybody knows that we've been protecting our territory because you can track the number of times we've challenged other ships or aircraft. And so therefore, because we can control that, it should now be ours. So looking at the vessel, the British vessel that transited, it was actually an amphibious assault ship carrying a number of uh, UK Royal Marines. Does it make much difference what kind of vessel conducts a FONOP? Is this particularly provocative, sending this kind of vessel close to the Paracelo Islands? Technically, under the Law of the Sea Convention, it doesn't matter what size the vessel is, so long as it's a sovereign vessel and is able to exercise those rights. So it could be a 250-tonne patrol boat or it could be a 22,000-tonne um, amphibious carrier, as the as the British used. Um, What might change, though, is the response of the nation and their perception about um, intent or threat that might come depending on the size of vessel that's there. And would this be seen as a particularly threatening vessel to China? A single single ship like Albion transiting through without any other task group support, um, I would think it's a fairly low-key way for the British to exercise their freedom of navigation options. Um, It would be more aggressive if they'd send it as a part of a surface task group surrounded by three or four frigates um, and a submarine. Um, That would be perceived differently. But a single vessel transiting through and a sovereign vessel transiting through makes its presence known. It means the British can probably spread their resources um, more across the South China Sea and make more of an impact over a longer period of time than having to muster four or five ships together to do that. Mm. You recently mentioned Australia. What interests do, does Australia have in terms of South China Sea? How, how do uh, Australian strategic thinkers consider what is happening there now? At the tactical level in terms of the competing claims in the South China Sea, um, really Australia's declaratory policy is that we don't We don't really care who owns which piece. We have no view on whether or not Vietnam owns a particular island or China owns a particular island. What we're concerned about is the way in which that sovereignty over the ocean gets gets expressed and what might be required. And for us in particular, the importance of the South China Sea is... um, strategically for trade, um, in that so much of our trade goes through the South China Sea. Um, But more importantly than that, it's an expression of the way in which we wish our region to work and operate, Um, that we have relationships and that we have rules that that everybody understands and can abide by uh, in order that we can keep an even keel on our regional security. Should Australia not be able to have as much access to the South China Sea for for trade, would it make a great difference um, economically if Australia were just to transit outside of the first island chain? You're right from an economic point of view and given that our major trade through that area is by and large going to and from China, either raw resources to China or fabricated um, products coming back again, you could say that it's not in China's interest to in any way slow down 
um, the trade with Australia. And in any event, if anything untoward happened with any other uh, nations in the South China Sea, then we can just route around it, use another strategic strait or transit further east past the Philippines um, to get into China to be able to uh, continue that trade access. Or, or to Japan, if they try and blockade us with Japan sending raw raw materials to Japan energy and so on, yes. we can just go around the we uh, can go around island China. Yeah. But at the... Uh, I guess at that strategic level and our national security level, we have a national interest in ensuring um, free and open trade in the South China Sea for everyone, not just those who might otherwise seek to control it. Um, And also we're interested in making sure that um, in the same way we do with other forms of trade and other forms of security relationships, that there is you know, a rule-based system. Um, there are the rules of the road under the Law of the Sea Convention and that we all understand those and we all have um, free and open, open access to what we call those global commons. So if, if it is in uh, deep, Australia's deep interests to uh, follow the rules of the road, why is Australia not then conducting its own freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea to uh, stand up and be counted in supporting these rules of the road. And Australia has been counted over a number of decades of actually conducting those operations which enforce the correct rules. As I mentioned before, the term FONOPS is a bit loaded, but so long as you're sailing through the high seas in the normal mode and so long as you're transiting through uh, a territorial sea in innocent passage, in the eyes of the law, um, you are equally exercising your freedom of navigation options. Um, at this stage, in my opinion, um, we would, with so much uncertainty around who owns what islands, it's in our interest not to antagonise uh, Vietnam or China or anybody else, but to continue our presence there um, in what we would just consider to be normal operations. Michelle, very interesting discussion. Thanks very much for coming in and talking to us today. Terrific morning, thank you. And now that we've looked at some of the legal and operational issues around maritime security in the South China Sea, let's broaden the discussion with you and Graham, looking at some of the strategic and structural concerns of the shifting maritime scape in the Indo-Pacific. G'day Ewan, welcome to the National Security Podcast. Good morning Chris, great to be here. You were recently at the biennial Kakadu exercises in Darwin and these are exercises where People's Liberation Army of China were involved and this comes just after they were recently disinvited from the RIMPAC exercises. Can you give me an idea of how well uh, China's presence was received and what it means for, for the Chinese to be involved in exercises run by Australia? Sure. Well, most of the attention did go to the Chinese participation, but in context, I think it's important to point out that this was a 27-nation jamboree, uh, the largest of its um, of its kind. It's run every two years, uh, and it included this time several Pacific, South Pacific uh, navies. I think it's important that Australia gets to convene both of its near regions, so that the Southeast Asians, the Northeast Asians and those from the South Pacific get a rare chance to interact. But that... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync... Things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Uh, was extended to the People's Liberation Army Navy this time, who sent down a frigate. Uh, I think it was um, in the broader context of a, a reset in the Australia-China relationship, very closely watched both inside government and outside government because of the symbolism that's attached to navies, because they carry this diplomatic function as floating sovereign assets. Uh, for the Chinese to come down here, I think would have been uh, attention worthy in its own right. But as you've mentioned, the contrast was drawn, drawn rather pointedly with the fact that they weren't invited to the RIMPAC exercise earlier this year. 
which appears to put Australia in a different place policy-wise to um, where the United States is in its naval engagement with China. But I think on balance, that's the right thing to do. Australia has its own bilateral relationship with China. It doesn't mean that it's going weak or soft on China. I just think rather it, it makes sense to communicate to the Chinese that we have our own sets of national interests. And on that basis, the bilateral military to military relationship will be conducted and the Navy to Navy part of that um, is particularly important because uh, the, the sort of embodiment of this diplomatic role. So I, I didn't take part in the sea uh, phase of the exercise. I was just there for the harbour phase when all the commanders came together for the, the conference uh, and the Chinese participated in, in that. Uh, and the atmospherics all appeared to, to go rather smoothly. This is all happening at a time where you will have seen in the news in the last few days that uh, a British vessel, the HMS Albion, uh, transited the South China Sea, moving close to the Paracel Islands. And as news has been coming out in the last couple of days, a Japanese naval task group has also sailed through contested waters in the South China Sea, waters claimed by, by China. And one of these vessels was a submarine that is now docked in Cameron Bay in, in Vietnam. We we are, we are seeing a fairly constant flow of vessels essentially transiting the region and challenging Chinese claims of sovereignty over the water. And this seems to be a, a bit of a, a status quo that we've reached. What can we expect from China? Are they going to be comfortable to politely challenge these vessels as they pass through waters that they claim control over? Or should we expect a, a new increment ratcheting up from China short of war that's going to up the ante somewhat? We need to be careful not to conflate two things here, one of which is the presence of international vessels transiting through the South China Sea legally and specific challenges against excessive maritime claims, which up until this point have been con conducted as freedom of navigation operations uh, uniquely by the United States Navy. Now, you mentioned the transit of uh, HMS Albion close to the Paracel Islands. That does appear to be uh, a step up by the British, who are in a, a bit of a purple patch. They've had three ships out uh, to the, uh, the Indo-Pacific this year. Uh, Albion, it was at the end of her 10-month deployment, a very long time to be out. She was on her way back from uh, Japan to Vietnam. Uh, and uh, at least in the way that this was uh, leaked uh, in the, the British press, it does appear that this was something of a kind of a, a deliberate challenge to the excessive claim off the Paracel Islands. Without getting too into the details, uh, the Paracel Islands... The, the claim, the excessive claim, is on a straight baseline. And that means that it was actually operationally quite a smart move, I think, for the Brits to choose that because they didn't have to deviate too far from the, the sea lane coming that would take them naturally to Vietnam anyway. And they don't actually have to go within 12 nautical miles of a feature to challenge the claim from that straight by baseline. All they needed to do was to pass through in their normal operational mode through the notional claimed territorial sea, which is, is excessive based on what you can legitimately do under the UN law of the sea to make the point. I think what, what raised the Chinese hackles was the fact that it was then leaked very publicly uh, and the Chinese response was uh, in kind uh, raised up uh, several notches. But in the broader context, as, as you've outlined it, uh, it's not just the, the Anglo-Saxon um, navies that are present, but also importantly, the regional navies. And Japan is, is, is one obvious one in terms of capability and interest in maintaining access to the South China Sea. This is quite a significant uh, step up, not because the, Ch the Japanese don't operate in the South China Sea, they do, and we understand that they're, they're likely to be there on a quarterly basis now, from what I've heard. But the fact that a submarine was part of the deployment and made an, an official part of the Defence Ministry's announcement was, I think, a, a sort of step up in terms of public signalling from Tokyo that despite the reset at the political level in the Japan-China relationship, talking about trade cooperation, talking about cooperation on the Belt and Road Initiative, that it's business as usual uh, on, on the sort of uh, the, the strategy end of the, of the relationship, that Japan will continue to not just operate in the South China Sea, but also to increase its uh, naval interactions with, with Vietnam, a, a rival claimant of China's.
how do we expect China to respond to such a constant deployment of vessels challenging their sovereignty in the area? Surely this is not going to be the status quo that remains for a long time. China is going to have to uh, step forward to push its claims. What are China's options to, should we expect an air defence identification zone to come up soon? How do we expect China to respond to what is essentially a new status quo of China making claims and other countries not respecting those claims. The situation that we have with China in, in, in many ways, I think, is characterized by the fact that the, the Navy and China's strategic weight has grown so rapidly that there's been a lag in terms of its ability to adjust to that in, in a, shall we say, a, a mature global maritime outlook. Uh, until this point, what we have instead is is a rather glaring double standard where China tries its best to deny access um, through various means to its near seas uh, and freedom of navigation operations are just one part of that. But the broader military capabilities that China is building up, uh, all of its messaging and its rather bristly tone, uh, we had a, a, a recent um, uh, media expose uh, of an American uh, P-8 that was carrying a, a media crew, which recorded a very shrill warning targeted at the Philippine uh, aircraft over uh, flying near a, a Chinese-occupied feature. That's interesting because it showed the difference in tone uh, that the Chinese employ to the United States uh, as opposed to uh, the Philippines, a, a much smaller, less capable claimant. So that that looked rather calibrated from the from the Chinese side. I think from the the, the longer term, the the interesting question is: as China becomes a global blue water navy, and, and inevitably the size of China uh, and its maritime interests mean that it will acquire those global interests. It already has the capabilities in many ways. Whether it will then. Um, as the Soviet Union did, change its posture over time to recognize that it's in China's national interest to acknowledge the uh, high seas freedoms, including access to the exclusive economic zones of other countries like the United States. And it already operates habitually in the EZ of, of, of the United States uh, in its uh, Western Pacific uh, territories. Up until now, that double standard has not been ironed out when it comes to the South China Sea or, or the East China Sea. That's what we're actually, that's the game, diplomatic and strategic, that's being played out uh, in the South China Sea. We've had an interesting change of tone um, just reported in, in comments here uh, by a senior colonel uh, in Canberra. Uh, which appears to be a much softer line, uh, acknowledging that Australia has a, a sovereign right to uh, make its own mind up. Its people have its right to make its own their mind up about whether Canberra conducts its own freedom of navigation operation. That was quite a striking softening of tone. I'm not quite sure whether that uh, is a joined up, uh, fully approved message, uh, whether it was a, uh, you know, a, a a single um, voice will we'll have to, uh, the only way to really test that is to operationally uh, see if, if Australia joins those similar operations that Japan and uh, the UK have been doing. Um, it's, it's an interesting evolution, but I think that, that for me is the key question. As China becomes a, a global maritime player, uh, will it in its own national interest, not because it's forced or compelled to, but will because it has its own interest in operating in others, EEZs, iron out its own double standard. Yeah, they, they were very interesting comments by Senior Colonel Wang Jingguo that he made just in, I think it was in the last 24 or 36 hours. Um, and that does suggest that, as you said, a bit of a softening in China's approach, which has been something that we've seen from the Chinese ever since they've started to assert themselves a little bit more as they were always acting in increments that are below the threshold of war. So a lot of people have been saying that it's it's not conflict that we should be concerned about, but what peace is going to look like in the region. So I would like to ask you a question along that lines of what kind of peace will there be in the region and what roles will navies have to play in it? We focus overly on the, the worst case scenario, uh, and that's what defence planners and strategic thinkers uh, 
have to do to a certain extent. But the reality is that I think we will, we will have a, a messy, tense and contested peace. That's more likely to be the outcome uh, than a descent into conflict. If we do descend into a conflict, I think it would be unlikely to play out as a a, 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 a head-on-head um, between China and the United States. It, it's more likely to involve uh, you know, an element of, of proxy, as has historically been the case, between great powers, especially those that, that have nuclear weapons. That uh, obviously disciplines, uh, despite the strategic tensions and China's obvious ambition to challenge the status quo, up until now, it's been very um, effective at being able to do that, but as you've said, below the threshold of conflict. But I think the mindset in the United States has changed across the board. It's not just the Trump administration. There is, I think, a much greater and concerted pushback to regard China as a, a peer competitor uh, and to manage that in terms of strategic competition. The gloves have come off on, on the American side of the equation. But navies perform this uh, as, again, this hybrid role, uh, everything on the spectrum from high-end war fighting, which they have to train for and equip for, and that includes Australia, by the way, in terms of the capabilities that have been invested in in, in recent years. That's what it's uh, about. But training for high-end warfare allows you to do all the other things below that threshold. Um, and that's the beauty of the flexibility of navies. They're also their ability to signal uh, the, the intent, their, their flexibility in reacting, but not reacting too quickly. That's another um, subtlety of navies. There's, there's a, a standoff, a delay. Uh, they don't fly at the same speed as aircraft or missiles, which gives politicians human error time to adjust uh, and to uh, to address that in a way that um, that decision making can can sort of rationally, in, in, in hopefully, uh, adjust to. Uh, and that's I think that, that we will continue to see more of these signalling reactive uh, deployments. Freedom of navigation operations, I think, have had too much attention. They're just, they're a very specific tool for a very specific function, which is to counter excessive maritime claims. They are not there to deter, and they are very unlikely in their own right to change China's decision making. But they still serve a function. Even if they don't change China's calculus, I think it is important for other countries to, to, to make clear to China that they don't accept, in, in terms of uh, customary law, uh, excessive claims. Um, so the fact that the, the, the British ship did make this apparent um, point uh, around the Paracels uh, helps internationalize the, uh, the, the concerns. What I'd like to see more of is not necessarily freedom of navigation operations. I understand the sensitivities around that. But the need for those who are directly in the firing line, the smaller Southeast Asian navies themselves, to be able to show uh, a bit more of a, uh, a collective identity um, beyond the small bilateral and trilateral patrols that we've seen. Um, ASEAN is about to have an naval exercise with China for the first time close to Chinese waters. The optics around that are potentially um, very bad indeed in terms of the appearance of going to pay tribute to uh, the, the rival claimant uh, that has much greater capabilities and which is known to talk about some countries being much bigger than smaller countries. Uh, I think the need for, for the ASEAN countries to, to be able to step up and, and uh, it may sound uh, cosmetic, but even just to why don't they fly an ASEAN flag as well as their own ensigns? That would make that would be a, a a very low cost way of demonstrating unity on on one level. You mentioned the United States uh, just as we were talking there and its strategic influence on the Indo-Pacific. Uh, recent Lowy polls that you've cited in some of your articles uh, show that um, Australians are in increasingly concerned about Donald Trump as the leader of the United States, but there's still a lot of support for the US-Australia alliance. Is it possible that Donald Trump could act in ways that will diminish support for the alliance? And if he could, what would an action like that look like? I think we've already seen some actions from the, the Trump administration that uh, challenged the received view that, that alliances are front and centre of US foreign policy. Um, there is, a, if you like, an ongoing tussle within the administration between the, uh, the establishment figures, uh, most of all represented by Secretary of State Mattis, that all is basically well, 
that the Indo-Pacific uh, is the theater of priority, as he's put it, for the United States, uh, and that the alliances um, remain uh, rock solid. But that's clearly been um, undermined by the president's own uh, questioning of alliances very publicly, uh, particularly the Northeast Asian alliances uh, that are also experiencing um, not full-scale trade wars as with China, but trade tensions. Japan has been, I think, put in a very uncomfortable spot. Korea, uh, although it's perhaps not thought of as, as front and center of the maritime balance, but if we're taking the temperature of US uh, support for the alliance framework, that will be very closely watched uh, if we end up in a situation where uh, the South Korean and, and United States approaches towards North Korea diverge over time, that if there is uh, a an adjustment of the U.S. force posture in South Korea, maybe even longer term a withdrawal, as Mr. Trump is understood to um, personally favor against the advice of his officials, then that will have a knock-on effect. I don't think Australia is fortunate we've not been in the direct firing line of any of these tensions but we do depend on the broader framework of extended nuclear deterrence. In that sense, anything that happens to uh, unsettle the Northeast Asian uh, alliances uh, is also directly irrelevant for Canberra. On the other hand, um, the United States Navy is a great force for continuity, uh, and we, sh we shouldn't um, uh, be too doubtful ab about the uh, continuity of, of the U.S. Navy in its in its forward deployment. Things are getting more difficult, uh, partly because the, the balance is shifting. So we tend to focus on the the micro um, politics of, of Washington, but none of which changes the the the, the basic arithmetic that China has uh, built a very capable uh, navy and. Um, has also uh, the largest Coast Guard in the world uh, and a maritime militia uh, at a sort of plausible deniability level below that, still performing a strategic function for Beijing. That makes it very difficult also for the basic reason that the United States is over there. Um, to react to any of these situations in, in the Western Pacific takes time to transit across from uh, even from Hawaii. So the United States is, 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 is always going to be geographically uh, disadvantaged uh, as opposed to China, which is inherently in the region. The counter to that is the United States is also trusted because it's not territorially part of East Asia. That's why it's been accepted uh, as long as it has uh, as the, the provider of security um, since the end of the, of the Second World War. The, the glass half full of all this uncertainty about the United States is that it forced, finally asks difficult questions of countries like Australia that have long talked about uh, taking up a, a more active uh, in defense engagement and leadership role in the region. Now it really counts. Uh, and I think that's the encouraging side of, of the, some of the uh, unsettling developments in Washington since the Trump administration came in uh, is that at least uh, until um, our own uh, political uh, churn of, of recent weeks, uh, they did appear to be. You could probably say that recent years rather <laughs> than recent weeks. Please go on. Well, but but under the, in the second half of the Turnbull administration, there did seem to be a genuine sense of momentum uh, and consistency in the way that Australia was going about its engagements, uh, and we've seen some interesting um, uh, straws in the wind. Uh, perhaps no more than that, but in comments from the, the new Chief of Navy, Admiral Noonan, suggesting that Australia is going to be uh, marshalling its, its naval resources closer to home um, as a reflection of Australia's strategic interests, uh, not just in a balancing sense, but also those assets are needed to, for, for engagement. You, you can only engage to the extent that you have time, fuel, and money to be able to uh, finance that and a certain number of, of hulls that are available to do the job. Australia's Navy is is highly uh, capable, but in capacity terms, it's relatively small if we were to uh, compare it to the Japanese or even the South Koreans.
As you've mentioned, Hawaii is quite a distance from Australia and the core of the Indo-Pacific region and the mainland of the US even further. With Australia pulling back its vessels uh, and pulling back some of its in, its assets uh, closer to the region and also Australia being right at the pivot of the Indo-Pacific, does that not make us more strategically important to the alliance than we were previously? Yes, certainly it does. And I think it was good that the Marines came to Darwin when they did. That would be very difficult, I think, to sell to Washington now. Uh, but now I think the strategic benefits uh, and foresight of that move uh, have been uh, positively borne out. Uh, Kakadu is another way of, of demonstrating that, that Darwin is closer to three Asian capitals than it is to Canberra. Uh, there's that obvious strategic advantage about being able to bring in countries from the region um, to Australia's own doorstep onto Southeast Asia. Uh, Inevitably, in a geostrategic sense, the Western Pacific has a northern anchor in Japan where the bulk of US forces and the the forward deployed carrier group are. That's the the primary spot for uh, forward deployment of US forces. But Australia um, will inevitably count for more uh, as the Force Posture Initiative, which governs the air and naval uh, aspects of of U.S. deployments uh, in and around Australia uh, become uh, stepped up and and, and more regularized. The Marines are part of that, but it's also a broader accent on on Australia's role within the alliance. Um, The naval part of that has not been as obvious as the air and marine components up until now, but I think that may change in future. Right. And to wrap this up, I'm going to get to the highest altitude we possibly can in a discussion like this. You've mentioned a few elements that that tie in. You've talked about the uh, post-World War II alliance structure that the US has around the world. And you've also talked about how China, as it pushes out to have a global presence, that it is likely going to see the benefits of what some may explain as a liberal rules-based order, where we are all protected by a structure of rules and norms. We're seeing a lot of discussion of whether the liberal rules-based order is a thing or whether it is a romanticised version of what the past truly is. We've seen some people such as Stephen Walt tell us that the United States propped up plenty of authoritarian rulers throughout the Cold War uh, and has continued to ever since, and that Washington didn't hesitate to break the rules of the liberal order whenever it saw fit, as it did dismantle the Bretton Woods system in 1971 and when it invaded Iraq in 2003. Raja Mohan from India has also said that the first 17 years of this century, the self-proclaimed leader of the liberal order invaded two countries, conducted airstrikes and special forces raids to kill hundreds of people uh, it unilaterally deemed to be terrorists and subjected scores of others to extraordinary rendition, often without any international legal authority. And Graham Allison has also said that the long peace was not a result of the liberal world order, but a byproduct of the dangerous balance of power between the Soviet Union and the United States during the four and a half decades of the Cold War and the brief period of US dominance. In your opinion, is the liberal rules-based order something that we really should be aiming for and something that we really should be paying a high cost to support and defend? Or is this a misunderstanding of the way the world has actually worked since World War II? And what should Australia be doing? What costs should Australia be paying to support this notion? Well, there's a lot to chew on in that. The rules-based order... Uh, is a phrase that uh, is echoed multiple times in Australian policy documents, including the Defence White Paper, the Foreign Policy White Paper. It's interesting to me that uh, the word liberal does not appear in the Defence White Paper, but the rules-based order part does. And is uh, I think that reflects a pragmatic evaluation on the Australian government's part, or parts of that government, that there is greater agreement within Asia on the order part of the formulation than the liberal part of the formulation. Now, liberal can mean different things also to Western scholars. Liberal economics, I think, uh, is certainly something that uh, most of the uh, governments in the region want free and open access in terms of a trading network and the maritime security that underpins the integrity of the sea lines that carry that trade. You will certainly get um, no pushback from Singapore, Japan, Korea, 
um, perhaps even China on that question. But if it's uh, extrapolating from that, that we're talking about uh, liberal in terms of the design of our political systems, that's where the dissonance comes. So I think the accent um, will be on the order part uh, rather than on the uh, uh, the liberal part. But the rules-based gives you quite a lot that you can play with. And again, I think rule of law is rather different to acceptance of a liberal order. Uh, and that gives us, I think, a lot in common with maritime countries. And this is a predominantly maritime-framed uh, region uh, that, um, that can be used to make sure that we do act in, in, in broad concert in support of a free and open Indo-Pacific uh, that is defined by uh, open uh, investment and, and, and trade. Now, China, on the other hand, uh, I think my reading of the Belt and Road Initiative is that it is fundamentally geostrategic in nature and what it fundamentally seeks to do is to sell a China-centered order an alternative to the region. So we're not going to have, I think, an, an, a happy meeting point between these two visions. Rules evolve, orders evolve, and the Indo-Pacific is not going to stay uh, as it is now. It clearly is going to be affected by the changing balance of power. Uh, and that's what uh, is essentially all being played out. It explains the, the tensions, uh, the symbolism that's applied to these rather small-scale tactical naval manoeuvres because uh, fundamentally that's what we're all um, freighting it with, which will be the ascending uh, order in the end. Um, I think for, for a country like Australia, uh, there are advantages to not being a major power. A major power also has to wear a straitjacket because everything it does will be read through a, a power lens. That's the frustration of being a United States or a China. But to be, a, if you like, a middle power, although I don't like middle, the word middle power because you're always looking up if you're in the middle, but nonetheless to be a, a, a more nimble power that has uh, networked um, alliances and partnerships it gives you a great deal more flexibility, so long as you can agree on what you have in common. Uh, that, at the moment, I think there isn't the uh, threat perception that really allows uh, the Indo-Pacific partners like the Quad Nations, for example, to, to assume a, a fully joined-up concert. Um, be careful what you wish for, but perhaps what it will ultimately take is a crisis uh, within the region to really jolt into action uh, those common threat perceptions. Um, from a, a realist viewpoint, I think that's probably what will be required. But until that point, uh, there is, I think, still basic agreement uh, that the status quo, however challenged it has been, has something been has been something that U.S. allies and partners have all benefited from uh, in the power equation with China. That's where it's going to have to be evolved. Uh, and part of that evolution means uh, the desire and willingness to accept risk in making that point uh, and to push back um, where those those rules have been transgressed. Uh, that's why the South China Sea matters. It's not just important as a body of water through which trade passes. It's the precedent value that really counts because if it's allowed to go um, uh, turned effectively into a uh, a Chinese-owned lake uh, in which you, military movements are only done uh, with prior notification and uh, uh, assent of, uh, of, of one littoral nation there, it becomes very difficult to maintain the standard elsewhere. Where the strategic focus is, is I think for Australia much closer to home. And just to sort of bring it back to that local um, relevance, uh, it's very clear that Australia is now um, much more focused on the South Pacific, much more focused on the near region in the in in Southeast Asia, uh, as its as as its areas of um, strategic interest, uh, and as a reflection of the fact that geopolitics has come closer to home. We're feeling that competition, uh, and there is, uh, I think, a, a very uh, interesting and rather urgent. Uh, dynamic in the South Pacific uh, in which Australia may end up having to take a, a forward presence again in that region. Uh, ideally, I would like to see that with the United States, uh, and I wouldn't rule that out. 
Um, we were uh, previously more active in, in the region. I think uh, that that is achievable. Um, it will be contested. There will be tensions. There will be pushback. And the South Pacific nations themselves will also need it to be given positive incentives, perhaps in the form of a broader grand bargain with Australia, giving access to labor rights. It's not just on a narrow strategic military chessboard, chessboard where this will be uh, decided. It is a full spectrum power competition that we're in, in which all levers come to play, economic, military, uh, even psychological. Absolutely. And as you said, there is a lot to chew on there. And I suspect it's one of those questions that's going to energise our listener base. And we look forward to receiving some of their comments on the issue as well. Ewan Graham, thank you very much for joining us today at the National Security Podcast. It's been a pleasure. And a big thanks to Michelle and Ewan for giving up their time today with us at the National Security Podcast. And be sure not to miss the regular Policy Forum podcast coming up this Friday where we continue the discussion on these grand global issues because we'll be talking about the rise of populism with a great panel that we've got lined up for you. And I also want to let you know about something big that we are planning here at the National Security Podcast. We are soon going to be talking to an absolute giant of the intelligence world where we will be discussing what is happening over in the US. And we are also planning our first live podcast. And if you want to be part of this, whether you want to come in and sit in the audience or whether you want to listen online, the best way to get this information is to subscribe to this podcast. And while you're online, pop onto Twitter and let us know what you think of some of our podcasts. You can do that by hitting us up at Apps Policy Forum, or you can go to Facebook and speak to us at Asia Pacific Policy Society, or you can just drop us an email using podcast at policyforum.net. We always like to hear your thoughts on what we discuss and some suggestions on what you'd like to hear us talk about. And we look forward to speaking to you in another two weeks on the next National Security Podcast. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,